Amen. I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel 16. We're going to begin with verse 1. It's on page 241 in that black Bible in the chair in front of you if you don't have your own copy. If you want a copy, we welcome you to take that copy. We want you to read it. If you take it, please just read it. And we think it'll change change your life if you read that uh, word. And so as we study that together today, and as you begin to turn to that place, I just want to ask you this question. Have you thought about your epitaph lately? You know, what's going to be on your tombstone? How people are going to remember you? I was uh, reading this week, uh, listening about a, a couple who had been married 60 years, and the lady died first, Bob and Mary, and and Bob had on Mary's tombstone place, the light of my life has gone out. Oh, it's a, a tough deal. And then a few years later, Bob met a new lady. And he didn't know what to do with that tombstone. So he, he added a little bit to it. He said, I've struck a new match. <laughs> Isn't that good? I like that. We got a couple of things on David's tombstone we could place. We're looking at David, uh, King David today. As we look at the whole story of reality, just to, to catch you up on some things, here we are at the beginning of the kings. We actually skipped over King Saul. Last time we were together was in the book of Ruth last week, remember on Mother's Day. And that was during the period of the judges. And in the whole story of reality, the judges were the ones that ruled and they were kind of the heroes that would, would bring about salvation for God's people. And they would uh, defeat the enemies of God. And then the people of God would do something. Again, God would bring judgment. And there was this whole vicious cycle, circle in the book of Judges. Ruth actually takes place in that book. But we looked at the end of, of Ruth, how important it was to look at the lineage. Ruth and Boaz, remember, had a son named Obed, who had a son named Jesse, who had a son named David who we're going to look at uh, today and actually in our life groups we're going to look at for the next 12 weeks or so because there's a lot there. We're not going to be able to cover all of it on Sunday morning, so I'd encourage you if you're not involved in a life group, get involved in that life group because you'll learn a lot more about David and all there is to learn about him. But we see on your bulletin there's a couple of things that could be on his epitaph if we were to write an epitaph for David. One is this, a man after God's own heart. Why did God reject the first king of Israel, King Saul? Because Saul had rejected the voice of God and God had rejected him as king. Why does God choose David to be the next king? Because David is a man after God's own heart. And that's what we're going to look at today. How do we have a heart like his? Not like David's but like the one whose David's heart is like, like the Lord. How do we have a heart like His? And how do we develop that? And that's going to be the, the primary part of the sermon today. So as we look at the next thing that's there, we see David had done the will of God in his own generation. That would be a great thing to put on your epitaph, would it not? Kyle, he did the will of God in his own generation, and then he slept. Jennifer, take note there. Would you put that on there? Because you know I'm going first. You put that on my tombstone, would you? That's what we want to be like, is it not? We want to do what God has called us to do, the purpose that God has placed us here on this earth for, and then we're free to go. We're free to sleep, 
free to die, free to go on. We want to fulfill all that God has for us. And it starts with the heart. And so as we look at this, we know that there's a lot of things that are going on in our world that we see. And a lot of things that we want to portray ourselves as. And as we look at this subject today, of who David was, we know there's a lot of things that we don't know about people that are here, deep in our hearts. Now heart, we, we know is not just that muscle that pumps the blood through our bodies, but heart in the, the ancient way of viewing things and in the biblical way of viewing things is all about our attention and our affections and our motivations. It's, it's all about what we think and, and what we feel. And then how do we act or our intentions after all of that, our actions after all of what we think and feel. And so as we think about all of the control center of the direction of our lives, that's what we're talking about when we talk about the heart. And how do we set the direction of our, of our lives toward the things of God to have a heart like His? Because I am convinced that God's heart more than anything else, as we look at the Scripture, is bent toward three things. One is the family. You think about our world today. Our nation today. We can talk about all of what we want to talk about in Austin or Washington, D.C., but the real problem in our world is the family and the breakdown of the family and men needing to lead their, their families as spiritual leaders in that house and and all of us playing that role that God has ordained for us to play in the family. God's heart is for the family long before government or anything else, any other institution. Even the church, that's the second, second thing I think God's heart is toward. His people, the church. And so we pray for the family and the church, but we also, and what we do all the time on these Oikos cards, is pray for the lost people because what? A difference it would make in our world if lost people would get saved and not act like lost people anymore. And if saved people who claim the name of Christ would act like Christians, our world would be different. And again, it starts with the heart. And honor the reading of God's holy word. Would you stand as we look at this scenario? Remember, God has already rejected Saul as king. And Samuel, the one who anointed Saul as king, the prophet of God, is now coming to Bethlehem. Ever heard of that town? That little podunk town? David is a hick from the sticks of Bethlehem. And there's one coming later we'll talk about who's also from Bethlehem. I asked a guy this morning, a young man in, in Sunday school, I said, hey, you going to learn something about the Bible today? What's your, who's your favorite character in the Bible? And he said, Jesus. <laughs> I like that answer, don't you? Because all of the Bible points toward him. And even in the Old Testament, we've been looking at all of it pointing toward him. So let's look. Now the Lord said to Samuel, chapter 16, verse 1, You have mourned long enough for Saul. I've rejected him as king of Israel. So fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there. For I have selected one of his sons to be my king. But Samuel asked, how can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied. 
and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord, invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you which of his sons to anoint for me. So Samuel did as the Lord instructed. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. What's wrong, they asked. Do you come in peace? Yes, Samuel replied, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. And when they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, Surely, this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel, but Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. Next, Jesse summoned Shemaiah, but Samuel said, neither is this the one the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel, but Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel asked, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him, and he was dark and handsome, with beautiful eyes, ruddy in complexion. And the Lord said, this is the one. Anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. And then Samuel returned to Ramah. Father, teach us. Teach us from Your Word. Your Word is truth. Lord, we know that this is not just a a story that happened 3,000 years ago. It's the truth that you want us to know, that you have revealed to us about how you want us to live and who you want us to be and how you intend to transform our hearts into a heart like yours. In your holy name we pray, Jesus. Amen. I'd like to just walk through this with you for just a moment and then we're going to look at some implications and applications. If you have a a copy of the uh, bulletin on the back of that, those uh, applications and implications will be listed there. As we look at this together, we know Samuel's coming for a very distinct purpose. And when Samuel shows up as the prophet of God in Bethlehem, it it would be a little bit like uh, the IRS agent showing up at your house. And you think, have I done my taxes this year or have I done them right or have I done them the right the last seven years or so and you're just thinking through your mind uh there's a there's a guy a person of authority here or an FBI agent showing up and thinking do I have all my ducks in a row have I been clean why why are they showing up at my house we don't know for sure what's going on but we do know that Samuel carries that kind of air of authority as a prophet of God with him when he comes into Bethlehem And so they're thinking, the prophet of God shows up. Most of the time that happens, that means God's going to bring judgment upon us. Samuel 
Have you come in peace? They, they may have also known about Samuel. At the end of chapter 15, Samuel uh, cuts the wicked king Agag, the Amalekite king, into pieces. Samuel did that. The prophet did that. So they might think, hey, this is one bad dude. I wonder why he's showing up in Bethlehem. And they ask him. He says, I've come in peace. He has this cover story. If you're coming incognito, it's always good to have a cover story. And it's always good to have beef involved in that. You know, a Hereford boy, he thinks about the beef. He's got this heifer. They're going to make this sacrifice. They're inviting the whole town. And Jesse and his sons are part of that. And then that comes before them, all of the, the Jesse's sons, because God has told Samuel just to part. God's told Samuel that one of Jesse's sons is going to be the next king. But he hasn't told him which one, and he hasn't given him great information. So what happens is they just file by Samuel. And can't you just see those guys? I mean, they're flexing, and they're looking. I mean, there's a real intelligent one, I'm sure. There's an athletic-looking one. There's probably a musical one. There's, there's one that's got great personality. They're all filing by him. J.D. Greer says it's a little bit like the story of Cinderella trying to find the glass slipper that fits instead of, of the slipper, though it's a crown. They're trying to find the, the king. And seven of those sons come by. He's not among those seven. Jesse's sure it's going to be one of them. In fact, he's so sure that he doesn't even invite David, to his own coronation, his own um, opportunity that he has to become the next king of Israel. He has no idea. Samuel has no idea. And here comes David with that ruddy complexion. Where he's a good-looking, dark. Ruddy means either he's a, a kind of red-haired and freckle-faced or he's maybe bronze-skinned. I don't know how you get those two interpretations from that same word, but that's how they, they seem to interpret it. The whole idea is, though, David's a good-looking boy too. But the point is, that's irrelevant. What they look like doesn't matter. The outward appearance, God could care less about. You think it's any different in our day? Do you think... The things that we do to impress one another matter to God at all. I mean, you think what you did to come to church today. I, I am appreciative, ladies, that you put on makeup and that you put and did your hair and that you, you look as pretty as you look today. I, I think every man in here appreciates that somewhat. I was thinking about this yesterday as we got ready to go somewhere. It takes Jennifer an hour to get ready. It takes me like five minutes. But you can tell it takes me like five minutes and you can tell it's worth the wait, right? There, there is a, a word. But we think about all of what we do to our outward appearance. And it's not just with makeup and hairspray and that kind of stuff. It's our resume or it's our education or it's our income or it's the things we buy with our income that we try to somewhat... Make ourselves special. It's the same from a very young age. Kids want to be athletic or they want to make good grades because they, they want, to, want to be special or they want to be popular. Or later on, they want to have an academic career or they want to do good at their job as adults or whatever it is. We're always trying to work on the outward appearance. Are we not? 
When was the last time you worked on the heart and let God work on your heart? Because that's what really matters. I told you the story about Ralph Rios when I was in the sixth grade. Ralph Rios was a boxer. I didn't know that at the time, but I decided I was going to stand up to Ralph Rios. He wasn't as tall as I was, so I thought I had a chance. But Ralph Rios hit me twice in the nose and gave me a bloody nose, and in the eye and gave me a black eye, and then I hit the ground. Three hits in that, that match. And he ran off, and I didn't have a chance. I was going to get up, and I don't know what I was going to do, but, he, you know. but here's what he did. He, I can still remember. This is 40 years ago now. He, he does this. He moves his hand right here. He moves his hand right here. And then, pow, he pops me with that one. He got me looking at that hand right there and that hand right there. And pow. And that's what sometimes we do with the outward appearance. We want everybody else to look at that. It's like magicians. They get you to look at one hand while they're doing the trick with the other hand. And we get people looking at the outward appearance and then we, we hide our heart. And that's what really matters. We focus on the incidentals, the inconsequential, the temporary of the outward appearance when what really matters is what's in here, what's inside. And that's where God works. And so when you look at the story of David, you see Jesse doesn't even call the runt, that's how you interpret that the best, the runt of the litter through the coronation. Because he's looking at the outward appearance. Daddy is. And so is Samuel, the prophet of God. But God clearly shows them in this example. Kingdom things are different. The thing that matters most to God is going to matter most to you and me in eternity. Because who really cares about your net worth? Who really, I mean other than you, who really cares about your physical appearance other than maybe your, your spouse? or it, I mean, ladies, don't quit wearing makeup. It, it's just not. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. The point is, God cares more here than here. Right? So let's look at some implications of this story about what takes place because David is so different than Saul. Saul rejects the voice of God. God rejects him. David listens to the voice of God. David's got this humble heart. Saul's got this proud heart. Saul is the the king who does things his own way. David is the king who tries to seek after the Lord. And when he, even when he fails, he repents of that and turns back to the Lord and the ways of the Lord. And we see that in the story of David. And so God uses David as the most powerful king, the great example of all the other kings of Israel, all the other leaders of the people of God throughout the Scripture. He is the epitome of what God wants, what God is looking for. And so when we look at this, let's look at some implications. First of all, we concentrate on character over reputation. We don't have to impress God. We focus on what really matters, not our resume. C.S. Lewis was one of the greatest Christian thinkers in the 20th century. Maybe you've read his classic Mere Christianity that would lead lots of 
pagan folks or atheist folks toward uh, Christian belief, belief in, in Jesus and accept Christ as, as Savior. And he, he kind of boils all that down in mere Christianity. Well, there's a, a famous fundamentalist named Bob Jones who uh, feels like you ought to separate yourself from believers who haven't separated themselves from other errant believers. So, in other words, he, he thinks you got to do it this way. And that means you got to do it the, the most moral, righteous, outward appearance sort of way. And in the end, there's nothing wrong with that as long as the heart is right and doing it for the right reasons. But Bob Jones says about C.S. Lewis, he says these words, that man, talking about C.S. Lewis, smokes and drinks liquor. But I do believe he is a Christian. Can you believe that? That a guy like that would say about another guy. I do believe he is a Christian. There must have been something different about his encounter with C.S. Lewis than with anyone else who smoked a pipe and drank liquor. There was something different about his heart. Even in the midst of... Now, I am not uh, advising you to drink liquor or smoke at all. Please know that. But I am telling you that we can fool folks on the outward appearance all the time. You can fool your pastor by showing up at church all the time. You can fool your spouse by what you do and say, but you cannot fool God. He sees your heart. He knows what's in there. Only God knows the heart. And when He looks at yours, and He looks at mine, what does He see? Selfish? Self-seeking? Heart like Saul? Or humble? God-seeking, heart like David's. You see, David was not a guy. How could you be as the eighth son, the eighth in that pecking order? He was not a guy who was full of himself. I'm sure his older seven brothers made sure of that. But he was a guy who was available to God. And God filled him. With his spirit. That's what made David great. Do you realize that? David was the greatest king. The greatest warrior king. And yet he's the runt of the litter. He's this skinny guy. He'd have to run around to get wet in the shower. He's that kind of guy. And yet, when the ladies started singing songs about great warrior kings, they would sing... Saul has slain his thousands, and David has slain his tens of thousands. Where did he get that kind of courage? Where did that little teenage runt get the courage to take on that nine-foot giant Goliath? His heart. God had worked on his heart. Where did he do that? Well, that's the second thing I want you to see. The second implication is find purpose. Find purpose in the preparation. You know where God prepared David most? In the pasture. 
out watching sheep. Can you imagine that for just a moment? The Chuck Swindoll says there's three things about that. One is the obscurity. Nobody was out there with him. He's out all by himself. There's nobody to impress out there. And then there's the monotony of just doing the same thing every day, scooping that sheep dung and making sure those sheep get to where they need to be, the water, the green pastures, all of the stuff that David writes about in the 23rd Psalm. Can you imagine what it's like when someone, when David come home and say, what'd you do today, David? Well, I was just watching those sheep. What else did you do, David? Well, I was just messing with that slingshot. I was just kind of, hey, I got pretty good. I think if I needed to, I could, I could zone in on somebody's forehead, some big old fat guy's forehead if I needed to, and put it right there where I needed to at just the right moment. I think I could do that. Just slinging that shot all around. What else you do, David? Well, I was strumming my harp. Can't you get that picture? Like he's got a little guitar. He got a harp instead. He's just strumming that harp, just singing those songs. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And all those great psalms come out of him. Think about that. What happened after Samuel anointed David as king? Where does he go? Does he go to Armani's robes and start trying on robes and start planning the coronation or the inauguration or any of that? No, he goes back to the pasture. It's another seven years before he actually takes over as king. Could you imagine what that was like to know that you were the king and then to be back with the sheep? And yet God was preparing him. When that lion and that bear came, he was ready. When Goliath came into that valley, he was ready. God had been preparing him and his heart, his shepherd's heart, how hard it must have been to watch after those stupid animals, those sheep. And yet it wasn't much different being the king and watching after those stupid people. You think about what he says in Psalm 78 for just a moment with me. If you see this, and you'll see this He chose his servant David, calling him from the sheep pens. And he took David from tending the ewes and the lambs and made him the shepherd of Jacob's descendants, God's own people Israel. He cared for them with a true what? Heart. And led them with skillful hands. You know how God developed his heart? It was through the monotony of being a shepherd. Now, Let's put that in our world for just a moment. You think your job's monotonous? I mean, watching after those oil wells or or whatever you do as a pumper in this part of the world or or grading those papers or, or changing those diapers or whatever you do day in and day out. You think that's monotonous. Can you find the Lord in that? Brother Lawrence used to... He was a a great saint of yesteryear, wrote a book called The Practice of the Presence of God. He talked about the God of the pots and pans and how he experienced God as he washed dishes at the monastery. Can you find God wherever you are in those children you work with or in those adults that you lead or wherever, whatever, whenever you're doing it? And can you recognize that there's a process, that God is developing some patience, that God is developing some joy, that God is developing some some discipline, that God is developing your heart 
there may be a point where he calls on you. In fact, there has been a point. We may not lead Israel or any nation, but we lead our families and we lead our friends. And he wants in us the same heart he wanted in David. A heart like his. Full of love. And joy. And peace. And patience. And kindness. And goodness. And gentleness. Self-control. That's what his heart's like. What's yours like? Because you see, there's a, something that comes on David that should have or, or can come on you. It rushes on David in verse 13 as we look at this passage. You, you see number three, you just got to trust the Lord's timing and the Lord's plan. So as David stood there with his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil. That anointing oil, he brought it and anointed David with the oil. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. That's the difference. That's what makes David special. And that's what makes you special and me special. The Spirit of the Lord. Romans 8 9 talks about it this way. It says, but you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit of the Spirit of God. If you have the Spirit of God living in you, and remember that those who do not have the Spirit of God living in them do not belong to Him at all. Did you hear that? If you claim the name of Christ... The Spirit of God, that same Spirit that came on David is in you. Rushed upon you when you said yes to Jesus. And if the Spirit of God is not in you now, then you don't belong to God. And you can do something about that. You see what Samuel does in coming to Jesse's house, he says, and looks at alive and looks at the outward appearance and the height and all of what he had looked at in King Saul. And that's why he was king in the first place. And Samuel doesn't learn his lesson. But he says, is not the Lord's anointed before me? Is this not God's anointed? You know what that word anointed is translated in in the Greek version of the Old Testament? It's Christos. Christos. Christ. The Messiah. Is this not the, the Christ? And Eliab wasn't the Christ. And neither was David. But there was one who would come from Bethlehem from very humble beginnings. That was the Christ. The one. The one who willingly, as a servant, laid down his life because of his heart for you and me. The one who came riding in on a donkey during that triumphal entry. And they claimed, Hosanna! Hosanna to the son of David! An ancestor, a descendant of David. And he rode all the way 
that road that would eventually lead him to the cross. David was forgotten by his father Jesse, but Jesus was forsaken by God the Father on the cross. Why? So you and I can have a heart like His. So you and I can be different. So you and I can experience the heart of the Father, the love, the compassion, the redemption. What does that take? How do you experience that? You say yes. You recognize your need. You've fallen short of the glory of God, but God has made preparations for you. You believe in those preparations that Jesus died on the cross, not just for the world, but for you. And you choose. You choose this day to follow Him. You've done that. Now it's time to display that heart like His. To care about other people. Not just about yourself and your entrance into heaven. But God is not done with you. God doesn't zap you up into heaven immediately when you choose to follow Him. God's intention is not just to get you to heaven. God's intention is get, to get the heart of heaven in you. And He's doing that. Will you let Him? What would it take for you to have a heart like His? David's was developed in the pasture. Singing praises to Him. Praying to Him. Listening to Him. He was not just reading the Word of God. He was writing the Word of God out there. For you and me, it's prayer and other people and the Scripture. And as we invest in those things, our worldview changes. Our heart changes. Our intentions and motivations and all of who we are and all of our direction, they change. So that at some point, for you and for me, maybe our epitaph can read, heart like his let's pray together oh father thank you thank you for sending Jesus Lord thank you long before you even sent your son to this earth that you were preparing your people preparing the world through guys like David showing them what it's going to be like what you're looking for Lord, we know David's not perfect. There's nobody in that lineage of Jesus perfect except him. But we also know, Lord, that David points us to the one who paid it all. To you, Jesus. And we thank you. We thank you that there's hope for sinners like us. We thank you that as we call on your name, as we commit ourselves to you, as we trust in you, as we share you, that our heart changes, the world changes. And Lord, you know, we are in desperate need 
of some change. Let it begin in me, Lord. Right now, I consecrate myself as I clean up. But even more than that, as I trust you, Lord, to fully clean me up through the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.